Good morning, Salt City Church. My name is Drake, and uh, I just want to start off by saying, I'm pretty sure we could just go home after that gospel reminder from Laura. That, that was incredible. Uh, I'm excited to gather with you guys again. Uh, we're not going home, though. We, we uh, are continuing our series through the book of Ephesians. Um, and here's what I want to start off by doing. As we've kind of looked at like, who we are as the church and rightly appreciating that reality, I want to go back to what Drew said a couple weeks ago, because I think what he said was rather fitting that, man, we have already kind of began to lose, lose a little bit of that excitement of us being able to gather. Like we look back a year ago, a little over a year ago, and seeing that we were streaming in online and we can forget what we have right now. So I kind of want to go back to that a little bit more as you're sitting, opening up your Zoom link, right? And you're seeing Isaac at his kitchen table with his guitar leading us in worship. And you're sitting there on the couch. You're like, I don't, do I raise my hands? I don't know if I do that. Like, that feels kind of weird. Some of you are like, I'm for sure not singing. Because um, I love being in a crowd where my voice kind of gets drowned out. But I'm not doing that on my couch. All right? There's only so, only so many times you can hear, sorry for the technical difficulties. Um, and church began to be this, like, background noise. As you're maybe tackling other things around the house. All right, let's be honest with ourselves. But here's the thing. We get to gather. Like, we get to come in this room, and we get to sing songs of praise together. We get to sit under the teaching of God's Word. And one of the things I love the most is that we get to remember who we're in this with. Like, this is the family that we get to strive after Christ with. This is the family that He has gifted us to mold us and to shape us to look more like His Son. This is a treasure that we get to do this. When we remember where we were in harder times, we actually get to truly grasp where we're at right now. And that's actually a rhythm that we see in the Bible. There's this constant theme of remember, look back, remember, because in the Bible, when we remember where we were, we can truly grasp the reality that we get to cherish right now as a church. And so again in this passage, we're going to read and see that the first two words are therefore Remember, like if you want to grasp who you truly are as the body of Christ, you must remember these words. So let's look at Ephesians 2, starting in verse 11. It says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Okay, so he's, he's speaking to a very specific group within the Ephesian church, the Gentiles, which essentially you could see as any non-Jewish person. He wants them to remember that you were the people titled the uncircumcision, which I don't think we need to go over um, what circumcision means. I think you guys are good on that. Uh, but what it was is that it was this symbol of the people that were set apart for God And what he's saying is that that wasn't you. Like, you weren't a part of God's people. And he wants them to remember that you were separated from Christ, that you were separated from knowing and cherishing this good God that you might have heard so many things about, that you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, that you were a foreigner to the blessings of God, just on the outside looking in on people that were cherishing those blessings, that you were a stranger to the covenants of promise. You were a complete stranger to the idea of resting in the promises of a good God that holds his promises. 
one that was faithful and true. And this caused an incredible amount of division in that culture. Like you think about the people of God and the people that were not of God, this caused incredible tension to arise. So there was a very clear divide between these people. Like even as these people went to the temple, there was a wall that was built up that the Gentiles could not go past. They couldn't go any further to be closer or to draw near to who God was. Literally written on this wall, they have stones that have these words written on it. It says, let no stranger, a non-Jewish person, come within the fence and barrier around the holy place. Whoever is caught will be himself responsible for his ensuing death. Okay, one of the kid books I read to Zeta said it's like a giant keep-out sign. All right, a little more simple, a little nicer. But it basically says there's this keep-out sign saying these people can't enter in any further. And I want you to imagine a Gentile on the outside of these walls. Like everything in their heart is longing for this idea of knowing a good and gracious God. But anytime they look at the very place where God dwells, it was only a reminder of how far away they actually were. Like they looked and they saw this wall that basically said, if you cross this, you're going to die. They looked and saw other people, the Jewish people, that were able to walk right past that gate and enter into the goodness and the presence where God dwelled. And you saw them joyfully worshiping, wishing that they could. And so the Gentiles stood on the outside of these walls, looking into the place where God dwelled, wearing with, them this, wearing with themselves the constant weight of being a stranger in such a good place. And I want to stop and acknowledge that this might be where some of you are at coming into this church family. And I just want to say real quick to the minorities in the room that this might resemble some of what you feel where you, you coming on a Sunday actually feel, feels like more challenging to enter in and feel like you are welcomed in this place in a way that other people, in a way that I cannot understand. Or for some, you connect with the Gentiles because you come in this room and you feel like you're isolated, like you don't know anyone, and you look at everyone here and it seems like everyone is experiencing this joyful community except for you, and you feel like there's this wall where you can't fully engage in what God is doing. And so to some of you, you can connect with these emotions that the Gentiles are feeling, that there's this distance between them and experiencing the goodness of God. And so Paul is wanting to remind them of that great distance. He's wanting to remind all of us of the great distance that we had before God one time in our life. And so he's saying, remember back to that state. So I actually want you guys to remember back to the time in your life where you were not walking with Jesus. And for some of you, you might not be able to like picture, like there's no clear-cut time that you can remember, but all of us at one point in our life resembled what verse 12 is saying, that we had no hope and without God in this world. And every piece of that statement is so incredibly daunting. No hope without God in this broken world. And so even if you're in the camp where you're unable to think back to that time, imagine that in your life now with the brokenness and the hardship that you go through. Imagine not being able to go to a good God 
Imagine back to a time where you were wandering around this broken world that's filled with hurt and shame, constantly seeking for hope, but never able to find it. Your heart longing to know the goodness of God, but you were blind to that reality and seeking for it in every other way. Facing suffering and loss with no greater encouragement, but that time would heal all of your wounds. No good shepherd to walk through the valley, no high priest to sympathize with your weakness. And in that state, where you were living in this broken world, the broken world that you're in actually gave you the greatest glimpse of heaven that you would ever experience. You, at one time, were incredibly far off from God, incredibly far off from the blessings of God, incredibly far off from the promises of God on your life. But now... And Paul gives us the whiplash yet again of this contrasting reality that that is who you were, past tense. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. That that is not true over your life anymore. What he says is that you were far off from God, but he has actually brought you near to the goodness of God. That you are now a recipient of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You're not a stranger to the to the commonwealth of Israel, you're actually brought into that goodness of being near Jesus. And here at the blood of Jesus, we see a symbol where we see both the brokenness of humanity and the mercy of God coming together. Because man was so broken that they went to such a great length to kill our king and to draw his blood, but it was that very blood being drawn that was the means that he would save the world. You've been brought near to God purely by the blood of Jesus being shed for you. And for some of you, this is the only thing you need to hear this morning. That's the blood of Jesus that washes you white as snow. That's the blood of Jesus that cleanses you from your sin. That's the blood of Jesus and nothing else that draws you near to the goodness of God. And for some of you, this is what you need to hear for the first time. Because... If you're being honest with yourself, that's still the state that you're in, of being far off from this good God. That you've been fighting recently to be good enough in your behavior. You may have been coming around to church and just trying day after day, like, how do I draw near to this God? And here's what we see in this text. There's absolutely nothing you can do to draw near to that God. But the good news is that the blood of Jesus was shed so that you are invited into that good God right now. The blood is the only reason we are drawn into God. So I want you to imagine with me, um, someone comes up to you, and they give you two tickets. They give you and a friend two tickets to an amazing concert to go to, right? Maybe it's Adele. She's coming out with a new album soon, so maybe it's an Adele concert, right? So they give you two tickets. And I want you to imagine your friend receives this ticket, and they're just pumped. They're immediately like, I can't believe we get to go to this concert. They just gave us this ticket for free. But you have a little bit of a different perspective on it. Like the whole time you're kind of just questioning it a little bit. Like, there's no way this ticket's actually real, right? Like this seems way too good to be true. We're probably going to get up. They're going to tell us it's not real. And then we're going to get kicked out of this thing. Like there's no chance that this ticket is real. So both of you roll up to this concert and you both hand them the ticket, who gets in? Both of you. 
Why? Because it's not based on your confidence in the ticket. It's based on you having the ticket. And so here's what we see, that your being brought near to Jesus is not based on how much faith you have in the blood of Jesus. It's based on the blood of Jesus. It's not based on the emotions that you feel stirred up when you hear about the blood of Jesus. It's based on the blood of Jesus. It's not based on how you morally respond to the blood of Jesus. It is based on the blood of Jesus. And so how can you have confidence that you, where you're at this morning, can draw near to Jesus? His blood was shed 2,000 years ago. William Reed says this. I think it colors in a little bit more. He says, That righteousness is not founded upon your feelings or experience, but upon the shed blood of the Lamb of God. And hence, your peace is not dependent upon your feelings or experience, but upon the same precious blood, which is the changeless efficacy and changeless value in the judgment of God. Nothing but the blood of Jesus draws you near to him. And that blood was shed so that all of us could draw near to that incredible God this morning. So that blood is what unites us to Christ, but it's also what unites us to one another. Let's keep reading. In verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So what is the hostility that existed in this time? So we talked earlier about this. In the text, it talks about this dividing wall of hostility. And we spoke to that. It was that wall that basically had this giant keep outside sign to the Gentiles. And where there was a physical wall that was actually built, keeping people separated It only provided the breeding grounds for an even higher wall to be built up in their hearts to keep people at a far distance. And so every time a Jewish person would look at a Gentile, they would look down on them in the pride of their own hearts. And anytime a Gentile would look at a Jewish person, they would see it with scorn and contempt and frustration within their hearts. The text talks about the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, and I just want to touch on this real quick, because this is the grounds that the Jewish people felt like they had in order to look down. So what the, the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, these were the ceremonial laws that the Jewish people practiced. So things like circumcision or sacrifices or feasts, things that happened in the temple that Gentile people actually could not go in and do. And so these Jewish people felt that they had a higher ground than these Gentiles. And this carried over to the church at Ephesus And this created the most clear us versus them division. And I think we can all agree that that type of division is something that we see so clearly today. Polarization creates us versus them dynamics in a a wide array of different conversations in our world today. And what we need to see as it's spoken about here in Ephesians 2, is that this is not just an issue that's relevant to some political climate. This is an issue of the human condition. Like ever since the beginning of time, humanity has been trying to get a step up on other people, trying to set them aside so that they could look better, so that they could be seen as more morally elite than other people. This is 
a result of the brokenness of our human heart. Our broken state has made us incredible architects at building up barriers in our heart that push others away that think differently than us. So whether that person is a Republican, is vaccinated or unvaccinated, whether that person is this or that race, some of the most complex topics that we have ever thought about, we've boiled down to a simple us versus them. But here's the difficult part about being in a polarized society. No one thinks they're part of the polarized category. Like, it's not like I'm a part of the us group and they're part of the them. It's like, no, I'm a part of the right group and they're a part of the wrong group. Like, they need to get their act figured out. They need to change the way that they're thinking because obviously it's not in line with the way reality is. And so I think we can be really blind to if we fall in that camp. So I want to ask a, couple, ask a couple questions. Do you find yourself being quick to question people who think differently on the political spectrum than you? Do you find yourself being slow to listen to people who disagree with you on something? Is there a tendency to draw near only to people who think alike as you? Or are you thinking about someone else right now? Because here's the reality. For me this week, that was what was present in my heart. As I'm walking in prayer, walking through this text, I'm thinking, man, it would be great for this person to hear this. I hope this person is in the audience. And I just felt the Holy Spirit gently saying, Drake, you're doing that right now. Unity is what is something that the whole entire world is striving for. And where it's experienced to the slightest degree in the two sides what is felt is the opposite. Like all of these hearts that we have to pursue after unity, what it actually brings is division. How can that be? And that's because we have been looking to this world to provide something that only a heavenly world can provide. And what Paul is reminding us as the church is that we have the unique opportunity other than the rest of the world, to actually live this out now, that we have access to this type of life now. I want you to notice the shift in the wording. He's no longer saying you, but he's actually saying us and our. So he says, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one by abolishing the law of commandments. Okay, so what does he mean by abolishing the law of commandments? Abolishing means to put an end to something, right? But if you look at the book of Matthew in 5.17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So we have to ask, like, how can those two things be held simultaneously? And just a real quick look into that. So what Jesus is talking about in that, that he did not come to abolish but to fulfill, is the moral law. And so what that is, is I would love the God, Lord my God with all my heart, soul, and strength. And Jesus didn't abolish that. He came and fulfilled that to the full so that that type of life could be registered to our account. So he didn't abolish that. He fulfilled that law. What he did abolish were those ceremonial laws, those religious practices that people did in order to feel more righteous than other people. And so Christ himself became our peace by destroying any walls built between people that could exist in this world. In defeating death, he defeated the division that exists because it has no chance to survive in his type of world. 
that no one's morality, no one's religious practices, no one's personal beliefs, no one's social economic status, no one's race could ever be a means to be better than someone else. All at a common ground before him. Why is it important for us to see that reality that that wall has been torn down? Let's look back at the text that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So he's saying instead of two men, the Jew and Gentile, he's created one new man that are clinging together to a greater reality. That Christ has torn down every dividing wall so that it would no longer be this us versus them within his church family. It would just be us. That the thing that marks all of us, the greatest reality that marks every single one of us, is that we are now united to Christ. And that is what should unify us, not lesser discussions of this world. The unity that we have in Christ is infinitely greater than the sum of every possible thing that could ever divide us. That is what Paul wants us to see this morning, that the church isn't meant to have a magnifying glass on our differences, but a spotlight on the cross, and we rally around that. We cherish it, and we worship King Jesus. That is the greatest reality of who we are, and when we begin believing that the blood actually accomplished what the blood accomplished, we'll see that division has no place in this family. When we begin believing that Christ tore down the dividing wall by being crucified on the cross, we will realize that we can draw near to those that are different than us in peace because God lets broken people like us draw near to him in peace. And we can do this because we all have a greater unity in Jesus. So a couple years ago, my wife and I moved up here um, from Iowa and something I learned very quickly about Minnesotans is that you have a passionate love for the Gophers, um, which also does not bode well for a Hawkeye alum, you could say. Um, and so as I began thinking about that rivalry, hearing people talk about the Hawkeyes, right, I began thinking about these athletes. And like year after year, they're just looking at the opposing team with just this frustration and anger, wanting to take it out to them on the field. And then I was imagining, like, imagine if there was a, a Hawkeye and a gopher. Both got drafted by the Vikings. But all they spent their time doing was yelling about how they were rivals in college. Like they're just running. They're like people are holding them back in the locker room. They're constantly fighting. One's yelling, go Hawks. One's yelling, Sky, you mom. They're just trying to tear each other apart, right? No. Like they wouldn't do that because they've been brought together on a greater team. That is the reality of their life. Church, we have been brought together to a greater reality in Christ Jesus, and so we don't settle for those lesser discussions of this world. This is the most true reality of who we are as a family, and that is what we rally around together. And so Salt City, are you finding yourself unite with others around the cross of Christ, or are you finding yourself unite with others around other things? And I'm not talking about some, a Jesus that fits into some political camp, but the one from the Bible. Because that hostility that spurs on division was completely destroyed at the cross. I want to read this quote, quote from a commentary 
Albert Barnes, seems like a good guy. Um, what he says is the best way to produce peace between alienated minds is to bring them to the same Savior. That will do more to silence contentions and to heal alienations than any or all other means. Bring men around the same cross, fill them with love to the same Redeemer, and give them the same hope of heaven, and you put a period to alienation and strife. The love of Christ is so absorbing and the dependence in his blood so entire that they will lay aside these alienations and cease their contentions. I love that line. That will put a period to alienation and strife. When we fix our eyes on the same Savior, Christ is inviting us to experience what no other institution in this world can accomplish, and that is peace with one another. Christ is inviting us to live in the unity that the rest of the world is striving after. Only when Christ is what we become more, most passionate about will we begin seeing that unity play out in this church. Why would we settle for anything less than that beautiful reality? Since we have been united with Christ, we no longer follow the course of this world like last week. Like we don't follow the course of this world that spurs on division. Like that's not our home anymore. So we don't live there because we are no longer citizens of this world. Let's jump back to verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit, Paul is just showing them the incredible reality of who they are in Christ. Like, you're not alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You're not a stranger to the covenants of promise. That's not who you are anymore. You're a fellow citizen with the saints. Like, the greatest description of who you are in Christ is that you are a saint before God, and that you are invited into the family of God that exists of all the apostles and the prophets that have gone before us, and Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And I want, I want you to see the imagery that's being played out in this text. Because again, imagine, go back to the Gentiles standing outside of this temple, the most beautiful structure that they were reminded of how they can't draw near to God, that that was the holy dwelling place of God that they had no access to. And so what Paul is coloring in it here is that he uses similar building language by saying that the apostles and prophets are the foundation and that Christ Jesus is the cornerstone and that you are being built into a holy temple in the Lord. Like for some of you, I want you to imagine too, like you look back and remember times where you were incredibly far from God, where you felt that there is no way a good and holy God would draw near to you. And what we see here is that that God that you thought would never draw near to you has actually drawn near to the most intimate part of you that Christ has come within you and that now you are the very place where God chooses to dwell. That people that were cast out, that said, keep out of this holy place, God says, I'm going to dwell within you. That the family of God would be the very place where God would choose to dwell and display himself to the watching world that other people would look at this room and they would see people who have been changed by that God. 
That they would see his love and peace and gentleness displayed. That they would not see a keep outside, but they would see a come inside. That all can come and be welcomed in this family because we've been welcomed in by God. That is the new reality of this family. That is the way that God sees his church. Is that the perspective that you have of the church? Because where we can get caught up in focusing on all the negatives and the brokenness within the church. God looks at the church and says, that is the place I'm going to dwell. Those are the people that I'm going to live amongst and actually display, to use, to display myself to the world around us. And so all of this is communicating to the Gentiles. You're no longer citizens of this world. You're citizens of heaven. You're no longer strangers to God. You are strangers to this world. And this is the overwhelming emphasis that Paul is reminding the Ephesians that that is their former life. Like division, hostility, that is your former way of life, and that is not who you are anymore. Like you've been brought into a new citizenship, and you are called to be a citizen of heaven now. So a couple weeks ago, Paige and I uh, just moved to a new house. Uh, We're beginning now the unpacking phase, which could last probably a good year or two. Um, and so that's been a ton of fun, but we now live in St. Anthony, and as we've grown more and more in love with that house, I feel like my mind is slowly catching up to it, right? So say I go to a coffee shop, you know, obviously Dogwood, and I, I get my coffee, and then I'm heading home, and I find myself just on autopilot, where I'm like just driving back to the old house, and there's a moment where I have to be like, Drake, like that's not where you live anymore. You live in St. Anthony. Here's what Paul is saying. Church, you are no longer a citizen of this world. That's not where you live anymore. That's not who you are anymore. You are a citizen of heaven. Live as that. Because although we are waiting to exist and to live in the new heavens, we are not waiting to be citizens of heaven. And I just have to ask, like, what if we chose to live this out? What if we chose to actually rally around Christ and him alone and nothing else and that he became the foundation of everything we were passionate about? Like that people would come in, that it didn't matter who came in these doors, but actually everyone would feel welcomed and invited into this family as we have been invited into the goodness of God. Like what if gossip didn't happen in this church, but actually it was encouragement of one another? Like what if we didn't critique one another, but we celebrated one another? Because here's one thing I've learned. It is very hard to critique someone that you're celebrating. What if we were able to have hard conversations and they did not divide us because we weren't trying to also unify around that. We unified around Christ. What if we didn't seek to be right, but we seek to showcase the fruit of the Spirit so that other people could see the life of Christ within us? These are all going to be constant states of our life in heaven. Like, this is going to be the constant reality of who we are in heaven. And here's the crazy reality from this passage that we get to live those out now. So I, I want to only ask three simple questions for you to begin thinking, how can you live these things out? There could be so many more. Who is one person that you could send a text of encouragement to this week to show I mean, how they've been growing in their walk with Christ? Like, can you imagine the joy that would be brought in this family If every single person here just texted someone, hey, I've seen Christ work in your life in this way, and I just want to say, that's amazing. Praise God. 
How much life would be spoken in to this congregation? Who is the one person that you need to shift the lens of your focus to be one of critique to actually be one of celebration? Where you're slow to speak. You're quick to listen. You're not just looking for red flags and things that they say. You're actually looking for the beauty of God's image in them. And you're trying to celebrate who they are. Last one, is there anyone in your life that you need to ask forgiveness for? For the tone of your voice? For maybe this barrier in your heart that you've created that's created a distancing with them? Is there someone that you just need to say, man, I'm, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? Words that are foreign to this world. The beauty of this passage is that this type of unity, this type of peace isn't just a dream of our future reality. Like, that will be true. But what Paul is saying is also an invitation for us to experience that now. That Christ's blood has brought us near to God, and Christ's blood has actually brought us near to one another, and we get to now rally around the most important part of all of us, which is Christ and Him crucified. That Christ is in us, the hope of glory. And as we do this, He is building this family into a dwelling place where he chooses to showcase himself to the world so that others might come in and experience him. Let's pray. Jesus, I I feel in my own heart just a need for this gospel reminder today. I see my own heart being quick to pride, being quick to looking at all the things that I do right and all the things that everyone else does wrong. And Jesus, I just need to remember that I was far off from you, but you, by your mercy, you, by your grace, shed your blood so that I might draw near to you. And that's the reality for all of us. Whether we put our faith in Christ and we need to be reminded that it's only the blood of Jesus that drew us near, or whether we haven't yet and they just need, that person needs to see today that there's nothing they need to do, but the blood of Jesus has invited them into presence with you. And God, as we stand in awe of who you are, as we stand in awe of your mercy, of your grace, that Jesus, you were silent as you stood accused, that you brought about peace, but you didn't experience that peace on your own. You were crucified so that we could be brought near. Help us to remember that us drawing near to you means that we also draw near to one another. So God, I pray that Salt City would be defined as a church that rallies around Christ. And doesn't settle for these lesser discussions, but that we would see that you are the most important reality of who we are. Help us to worship you. Help us to lift up songs of praise to you because you are worthy of our worship. Amen.